Today's scripture reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, there's so much here, and uh, we won't be able to say it all, of course. I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and do uh, the powerful, beautiful, personal thing that, that only you can do, which is uh, to take uh, out of this juggernaut of a passage the specific things that need to apply to each of our hearts and how you want to speak to us prophetically as a church community, what things you're calling us into. We need your help right now. Uh, so we, we just, we've already been asking you, Holy Spirit, to come, but right now we just acknowledge that this is your word, that it is true. It is from everlasting to everlasting. Uh, all of our, our moods have a beginning and an end. Our circumstances have a beginning and an end. Even our our days on this earth have a, a beginning and an end, and yet your word extends all the way in both directions. It is a stable, sure foundation. So come, Holy Spirit, and help us understand the beauty and the majesty and the power of your grace. May we be changed by it, truly. Uh, may, may our expectations be raised for what's possible in a middle school auditorium on a regular Sunday, that, that you want to minister your life to us. So come and do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we do, we do things like this from time to time, but I, I want to start with a, a thought exercise. Um, uh, I, w I want you to think with me for a moment about how you would answer the following question. What is wrong with the world? And I actually, not even like rhetorical question, I really want you to think about how you would answer the question what is wrong with the world? Not, not like the F train is slow and my boss has halitosis, but like what, is fun, what are the fundamental problems of, of life on earth? Um, so I want you to think about that. And I want you to try to think about it even as I'm going to ramble on. Um, 
without trying to jump ahead and think too much about how it relates to the Bible verse. Basically, I don't want you to try to give like a church answer. I want you to really think about what you think is wrong with the world. And imagine it this way. Imagine that you were going to be put in a room and given as much paper as you needed and as much time as you needed, and you were going to be given the responsibility to outline what is wrong with the world. And then if you wanted... The answers that you come up with could be taken and given to any of the world leaders that you want. Let's say that this, was, this is the parameters of our imaginary situation here. Whatever you write down is going to be put in front of the world leaders in, in government, in, in medicine, environmental research, in social policy, in, in psychology. What would you say to the question, what is wrong with the world? This is a long pause, so you can think about your answer. In typical speaker fashion, I'm going to now make suggestions of what you might have said. Isn't that a great trick? Perhaps your answer would be something along the lines of, I have no idea. Uh, I, I, in a sense, I'm not equipped to answer that question. I wouldn't want that responsibility. No, thank you. Your imaginary uh, scenario, I reject. Um, or perhaps you would say, listen, I don't think I could answer in any sort of complete way, but here are the things that are on the top of my mind, and what, what, what comes out? Greed, maybe that's a start, one of the things that's wrong with the world, violence, we have broken governments, we have corruption, uh, we have war, we have overconsumption, we have wasted resources, we have racism, we have inequality, we have... Maybe you take a more psychological approach and say it's our egos or it's the wounds that we receive when we are children that haven't been dealt with. It's religion or it's lack of religion. It's what we eat. It's how we get our food. It's drugs. It's our entertainment. It's our addiction to our phone. It's Republicans. It's Democrats. It's love of power. Right? What, what are the things that are going to fill the pages if we're trying to honestly answer the question, what's, what's wrong with the world? We see it ourselves. We're certainly being told uh, you know, day in and day out that we're living in a divided world and, and a divided country. And one of the ways that certainly we're divided is over this question. What is wrong with the world? Or maybe another way to say it is we're divided over what's most wrong with the world, <laughs> Because the emphasis is really important. Even if, if, if in general terms we might have some of the same things on our paper of what's wrong with the world, of all that is wrong with the world, what should get the emphasis of our attention? What do we go about trying to fix? What are the keystone problems that if we could repair this, we could repair everything else? Because of course, however you understand the answer to that question, what's the problem or the many problems of their world, their, their value and their importance, that's going to shape how you go about addressing them, what things you think are important as part of the human community. So I was tracing this out of my mind and thinking about, well, what about the problem that we're never going to come to the same answer? What about the problem that I'm about to suggest the scriptures have an answer to that question, but I have no... Uh, confusion about the reality that we're, not, we're never going to get to the same place with all of our neighbors just in Park Slope or, or just in Brooklyn or just in New York City about the answer to the question, what is wrong with the world? So what do we do about the fact that we know we're going to be divided about the answer to that question, about what, where to start 
with repair. If we're always going to be somewhat divided about what is most important and how to fix it, what are we going to do? I was just on vacation last week in the Pocono Mountains, and I was rereading a book review of a dictionary. And I, I don't say this to boast. Um, I could not convince my family that it was worthwhile to listen to it on audiobook. Instead, we listened to Harry Potter book five, which is crazy. It gets so intense by book five, guys. Um, David Foster Wallace has, uh, has this review of a dictionary, of, of all things, and it's called Authority and American Usage. Uh, and it's an essay that keeps returning in my mind because even though it's a book review of a dictionary, it seems to find a way to touch on everything in life. And it specifically touches on uh, our philosophy of language, how we, how we determine what words mean and how those words find their way into our po- po- political discourse, our answering as a society the question, what's wrong with the world and how do we fix it? And do you know that there are conservative dictionaries and liberal dictionaries? Did you know that? Did you know there's a seamy underbelly of U.S. lexicography? Check it out. Authority in American usage. And I find that uh, this essay, written in 1999, is, is startlingly relevant for our national conversation today. Wallace describes this reality of how do you deal with fundamental disagreements, not just like issues of preference, but issues of fundamental disagreements that that the way forward really shapes how the world is going to, to be in the, in, the, in the years to come and, and really shapes what we're going to you know, link our arms and, and share our resources and work on together. What do you do when you have fundamental disagreements about the way forward? And the phrase he uses and that he's commending is a democratic spirit. And I don't want you to get hung up on the democratic spirit in like the American history sort of, sort of way, even though it's, it's something worth considering. What he's saying is basically like a generosity to take other people's ideas into account. And like, you know, you know when you're in an argument or debate with someone and, and you summarize their position, but you do it in a way that you know they would absolutely not agree with? He's saying we need to get to a place where you can summarize your opponent's position in a way that they would say, yes, I'm satisfied with that description. Here's, here's, here's how he specifically says it, and I think it's beautiful. A democratic spirit is one that combines rigor and humility i.e. passionate conviction plus a sedulous respect for the convictions of others. As any American knows, this, this is a difficult spirit to cultivate and maintain, particularly when it comes to issues you feel strongly about. This, this kind of stuff is advanced U.S. citizenship. A true democratic spirit is up there with religious faith and emotional maturity and all those other top of the Maslow pyramid type of qualities that people spend their whole lives working on. A democratic spirit's constituent rigor and humility and self-honesty are, in fact, so hard to maintain on certain issues that it is almost irresistibly tempting to fall in with some established dogmatic camp and to follow that camp's line on, on the issue and let your position harden within the camp and become inflexible and to believe that the other camps are either evil or insane and to spend all your time and energy trying to shout over them. I submit then that it is indisputably easier to be dogmatic than democratic, especially about issues that are both vexed and highly charged. Does any of that sound familiar? (laughs) To separate into camps and to fire labels across the aisle at one another, 
to label the people in the other camp as evil and ins- or insane, right? To go to the highest level, like right? <laughs> you're Satan incarnate because you don't think the same as I do. As I said, Wallace wrote this essay in 1999. I don't think the last two decades have taken away from his argument. Perhaps we've gotten as, uh, so much better at hardening our positions within a camp, becoming inflexible and labeling those who disagree with us as evil and insane. When, when I think about those words, I think about, because it's, I knew I had to speak on this, um, so it's not just like uh, n- not maybe wouldn't naturally come to you, but I was thinking about what Paul is attempting to do in this part of Romans 5, and he's attempting to give an understanding and a definition of what's wrong with the world, and he's attempting to do it in a way that I think is ingenious because it's meant to bring people outside of their camps and together around the problem. Remember, this is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the most powerful city in the world at the time. He's writing to a people who are on opposite ends of that world, racially, philosophically, socioeconomically. These are people who would have marched in different rallies. These are people who would have posted different things. Who, who, if they would have had different hashtags trending on their social media. These are people who would have spoken up for different things in the world. They would have, they would have given different answers to what is most fundamentally wrong with our world and how do we go about repairing it. And, and Paul is attempting to bring them together. To live in unity in this new community of Jesus. It was a new community that was cropping up all across the Roman Empire. How are Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, uh, people from all different races races and socioeconomic backgrounds going to come around the same table? And this was the beauty. Whatever you think historically about Christianity, this was the thing that captured the imagination of the Roman Empire. 300 years after it began, this little movement of band of Jesus followers that started as a sect of Judaism had totally transformed the Roman Empire. And a huge part of why was how they loved one another, even though they came from totally different backgrounds and had totally different starting answers for what's wrong with the world and how do we start repairing it. So whatever Paul does in these, in these letters and the other apostles, it's, be, it's cultivating a type of unity, a type of humility that makes that type of love that really changed the world at one point in history possible. So, for four chapters, before chapter five, which is what we're in now, Paul's been outlining all the ways that the world is broken. He's been giving a thorough answer to the question, what, what's, what is wrong with the world? And basically, no one has come out innocent. He's had a thorough implication of, of, of all of us, and it's not like the implication that we so often find in, in our wider cultural uh, conversation, which goes like this, well, no one's perfect, but it's really those idiots over there that are ruining the world. Paul doesn't let us off the hook that easily. Paul's saying, we're all in a huge mess, and we all contribute to that mess in very significant ways. <laughs> That's the theological summary of Romans 1 through 4. We're all in a huge mess, and we all contribute to that mess in very significant ways. And now some of, these are some of the most stirring and important sentences ever written down. That's true whether you believe the message of Paul or not. They're simple. They're historical impact on the world. He summarizes where he's gotten to up to this point. The second half of Romans 5 is a summary of all that's happened in the letter so far, and it's a summary of Paul's vision of the world. Grand terms. (laughs) Hear it one more time, just just to start. Therefore, just as sin 
entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. And then he trails off. We'll get to that. An aside, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, cheerful news, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a commandment as Adam did, who is a pattern of the one to come. If you love complicated sentences, the Apostle Paul is your man, okay? He's been laying the groundwork, and now he's, he's summarizing for us, but he's doing it in astonishingly large sweeps. In a few words, in just a few sentences, he covers original sin, the reign of death, and how ultimately the things that we think will fix our problem won't. So that's what we're going to take on. We're going to do these quickly, but one at a time. First, original sin. Just as sin entered the world through one man... Right? The Apostle Paul and the whole narrative of the scriptures is asserting this. The most primary problem in our world is that humanity has gotten disconnected from relationship with God. The Apostle Paul's answer to the question, what's wrong with the world, is that we have gotten disconnected from our relationship with God and that there is a plethora of evil and brokenness that spilled into the world because of that and have been perpetuated by inheritance, by nature, and by choice throughout the rest of history. That relation, essentially this, relation, that you are created as a fundamentally relational being. Do you know that about yourself? You are a fundamentally relational being and that relationship with God is meant to define our reality, shape the world, and brokenness in our relationship with God has consequences that are utterly devastating. This is Paul's assertion. This is an assertion of, of, of basic Christianity and the assertion of the scriptures. That there was a choice or a set of choices that was made in this account that's referenced in Genesis that has come now to shape the reality of our world. Now, I know this is, this is familiar for so many of you, but I, I want to I try to make it as clear as we possibly can. Because if we get this beginning part clear, by the time we get to what our invitation is as a community at the end, it will have that much more weight if we understand the power. Sin entered the world through one man, right? How can we understand what sin is from the Genesis account? Right, even, you know, like, David Foster Wallace is talking about what happens when words begin to change their meaning and we start using them in a different way, right? If essentially sin has now come to mean like, I bought a bunch of Godiva chocolates, right? I'm sinful. Like the, the, the word has lost its, its meaning or, or it's some stodgy, old, dusty religious word that nobody really in your workplace would ever be heard using. So, so what, what happens if we lose the power of a, wor- of a, word, of a word like sin? How can we understand it from the Genesis account, right? Think about the metaphor. Think about the picture. Think about what's being referenced here. The picture of sin in Genesis 3 is what? Eating fruit. Hard. We have rape and we have murder. We have genocide. We have racism. How on earth can we look back and say that sin, whatever it is, is eating fruit? That's the picture that's given in Genesis 3. This is what's so, so important. You cannot understand sin outside of a relational context. You cannot understand sin outside of a relational context. No sin, whatever it is, is simply a bad action. Sin is a violation of relationship. 
So of course eating fruit is, 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 is not the issue. It's that Adam and Eve made a decision, and that decision was not to trust God to totally tell them the truth, right? The deception comes in. The mechanics of how the deception takes place were in the passage. I won't go over all of them, but basically the deception comes in and says, Do you, can you really trust God to give you life and give it to you to the full? There's something he's holding back from you. And so their decision to eat the fruit was a decision not to trust God to totally tell the truth. It was also a decision not to trust God to meet their needs, there were things that they knew they needed. They felt an internal urge and desire and craving for that they felt like God is not, he's not in this in the same way I am. He's not looking to meet my needs, and so I'm going to have to take it up myself. They didn't trust God to tell the truth. They didn't trust God to meet their needs, and they didn't trust God with, with, with the guidance of the world, with their inner desires and the guidance of the world. You can look at the mechanics in Genesis 3. But here's how I want us to understand it, church. We understand sin as anything you do against the character and word of God. Anything you do against the character and word of God. One of the great deceptions of our world is to reduce sin down to just one half of its full scope. Which is basically to make it the obvious bad things that we do. We know that it's murder. We know that it's stealing. We know that it's lying. Instead of seeing the full scope. That sin is anything that we do to try to live a full life without taking God into account. If God is the source of our life and he is meant to shape and define our reality, we are fundamentally, primarily spiritual, relational beings. And that we cannot live the full, abundant life we are meant to without being connected to the God who, who created us in a relational way. And then connected to the other people who bear the imago Dei, the image of God, our neighbors... The way Jesus summarized it is, is we go back to it over and over again. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. God's vision of the world is highly and, and completely relational. Sin is a violation of those relationships. It's to violate your relationship with God and to violate your relationship with your neighbor, your brother, your sister, your family, your spouse. It's always in the context of relationship. It's trying to meet the deepest needs of your life without taking God into account. So think about the deepest needs of your life and how you go about trying to get those met. I know for so many of you this is like the basics, this is 101, but let's just keep going, let's keep drilling down to get it as clear as possible. God is the source of life. God gives shape and substance to reality. When you break with what God has said and who God is, you have sinned. That is what sin is. Sin entered the world through this choice, through these people, through this one man, and then death through sin. So this is so important. If you're going to understand all that happens in the rest of the scripture, you have to understand this spiritual law that's as powerful as, as, as the law of thermodynamics. It's as, it's as powerful as the law of gravity. A spiritual law in the world is that sin and death go together. Why? If to sin is to break with God as the source of life, to break with God as the source of life, then that is to invite a space where death comes in. To break with life is death. If sin is to break with God, who gives shape and substance and order to reality, then sin is both to invite in death and to unravel the shape of your life, to disintegrate your world, and to bring a level of chaos in. The 
the Hebrew poetry in the beginning is that the earth was formless and void. There was chaos. And the spirit was hovering over the shape of the deep. And that God's word began to give substance and order and reality to the world. And that when you break with the character of that God and the word of that God, you sow chaos, you sow disintegration, you bring death into your world. And it happens in small ways. Like, you ever experienced the death of trust in an intimate relationship? It's a real death, <laughs> right? The, the, have you ever experienced the death of your confidence that you are, you are loved and the flood of insecurity that can come in, the disintegration that takes place when we go against God and his character? So we might have come up with really great understandings of what's wrong with the world or, or, or what's wrong with part of the world, but we will do really well to have a good look at our own hearts to have a good look at our neighbors and see if this account doesn't seem to make sense. G.K. Chesterton, I was reminded in pre-service prayer this morning, a letter was written to this famous British theologian and thinker to answer that question, what is wrong with the world? And he wrote back very simply two words, I am. That the line of good and evil runs through our very hearts. We are in a huge mess and we fundamentally contribute to that mess. We all sin in blatant ways, but also in subtle, well-meaning ways. And so does your mother-in-law, and so does your crush, and so does your boss, and so does your mentor, and so does the other party's candidate, and on and on. Sin is all the ways that we say to God, I think I can do better. Now, when I hear theologians describe this they say this is the bad news and then we're going to get to the good news but I actually think there's some good news in the bad news and one happens to relate to how we do our national conversation or how we relate to one another on social media or how we relate to one another at the holidays or with our family or how we relate to one another at all it's this fact if we know the line of good and evil runs through every single human heart then we might have a little compassion for one another this person is just trying to meet the deep needs of their life out of their own resources the same way I am. We're missing the voice of God saying, do you know how loved you are? Do you know how forgiven you are? Do you know how free you are? Do you know that I have a, call, a calling for your life? Do you know that you make mistakes, but you're not a mistake? So, sin came into the world through through our first ancestors, and death through that sin. So what, what essentially, and I know we're doing like some, some systematic theology together, so tr track with me here. People from this moment forward have been dealing with a problem of disconnection from God in their nature and in their choices. By nature, we seek to go our own way. We are, we are more selfish than we are loving by, by nature. But also, we make many, many choices directly to go against God and God's word in the, in the world. And in that separation, death is invited over again and again. We live separate from God. So in a sense, the, the way you could say it is, even though we're physically alive, we're spiritually dead. And the horror is that this spiritual death can become our permanent state of affairs both in this life and the age to come. I like how Eugene Peterson translates this part. I'm gonna put it on the screen. This will be a bit of a breather for us. So death, 
This huge abyss separating us from God dominated the landscape from Adam to Moses. Even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did by, by disobeying a, sp a specific command of God still had to experience this termination of life, this separation from God. But Adam, who got, in, who got us into this, also points ahead to the one who will get us out of it. Just meditate on that for a moment. Paul's a Jewish rabbi. He has a special sense of calling to go to the Gentiles in the world, to those who are not like him, and to, to speak this message of hope and life in Jesus. And so a lot of his life work tries to, to bring people from different ends of the world around the same table. And so Paul has to address the way the law of Moses relates to God's plan in the world, because if he doesn't address the covenant faithfulness to God and Abraham, he's going to be missing a huge part of the story that's going to be of primary importance to so much of his audience. And so he mentions the the law of Moses. It's basically like he starts a thought in verse 12 and he finishes it in verse 21 and in the middle he has two tangents and one has to do with the law of Israel and, and one has to do with what God's salvation is supposed to bring into our lives. The first one is, is, uh, is about the law. I could feel your eyes glazing over when I'm like, this is about the law and you're like, I'm not interested in this. Um, that's fine. Track with me for just, uh, just a moment. I, don't, I just felt that in the room. Huh? How sensitive am I? Um, so what's he saying? He's making clear that sin and death were in the world from Adam to Moses. Why is that important? Because when, when God gives the law to Moses, he's giving his instructions for how his people are to live in the world. He's, in a sense, reforming them from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They had a culture of slavery, but they're called to be his people and be a blessing to the, to the entire world. If they're going to do that, they need a new constitution that shows them how to live the way of God in the world. And so God gives the law. But he's saying that sin was present in the world even before that. And what the law did was it showed the scope. Basically, like, sin was present. People were trying to meet the deepest needs of their life apart from God, not taking him into account. But the full scope of the damage wasn't known until God laid out what was, what was possible and what was expected in his law. And then all of a sudden, it became so clear, like, we're so far away from where we could be. We're so far away from what we're invited to. The second thing that it showed was that no outward, no outward instructions alone were going to be able to repair our hearts or repair the world. So the law coming in does at least two things. One, it shows the scope and damage of what sin and death have been doing in the world. And it also shows that no outward instructions are going to be able to repair our hearts or repair the world. I was trying to think of a way to, to make this, this clear. Um, you might... It's already clear. Don't worry about it. But um, I'm going to do this anyway because I've got the mic and I just got back from vacation. So much of when I was being parented by, by my, my mother and father, I look back on now and I realize they were trying to show me what could have happened. <laughs> Right? I did something and what could have happened didn't happen, but their parenting was trying to show me what could have happened. Like, this thing that you did, it didn't result in the cataclysmic disaster that it should have, but next time it probably will, so go to your room. I, I noticed myself doing this very thing with my kids. I will not name names, 
But one of my children threw a rock at the, at the head of another one of my child on our most, most recent week, week-long family vacation. So I'll give you the picture. I won't name names. If I do slip up, I apologize to my children. But one of the kids is at the top of the hill. The other kid is at the bottom of the hill. He picks up a rock. And his, mentally, he just goes brain dead for just a second and thinks, good idea is to throw this rock at the head of my, my brother. So he does that. The rock doesn't hit him in the head, but hits him in the shoulder. The brother who is hit immediately bursts into tears. And I, like, we have a certain set of punishments that our kids can expect. Go to your room and sit, sit in time out for a while. You know, like, if we want to make it really bad, we're like, write 20 sentences. I just blow through all the barriers. I'm like, write 100 sentences. I will use my brain, and I will not lie. Because this child's defense was, I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know that I shouldn't throw rocks at people's heads. It's like, I don't know if I've given you the Mosaic law specifically that you should not throw rocks at the heads of other people. But let me say, sin has been reigning from Adam to Moses. And now let me show you the scope and damage. Your, your brother has braces. Had he turned, he could have been hit in the face. He could have been struck. And like Goliath, the rock sunk into his head. He could have collapsed. I could be driving to a hospital right now instead of sitting here reading this review of a dictionary. What have you done? And so in Mosaic law fashion, he was given 100 sentences. I I will use my brain, and I will not lie. We ended up compromising. He only got 60 sentences, and then he added 15 hills, which he had to run uh, to get rid of the last 40. Here's the thing. It's, It's humorous, but it's our condition. So often when we begin to make a choice that violates the nature or character of God, we don't have a sense of where it's leading. We don't have a sense of the scope of the damage. It's why the law is so important. It's why we can't get rid of the the law of God because it shows us the scope of the damage, the damage that's taking place in our own hearts and the damage that's taking place in the world. Here's the way it works. The first time you let your eyes wander and linger on someone who's not your spouse... And you begin to play a picture in your mind of, oh, what would it be like to step outside the bounds of this covenant that I've made? You don't have a flash very often in that moment of the full scope of relational damage. If you went all the way down that course, what would happen to your life? We're not getting, right, maybe it would be beneficial for us, but we're not given a a flash forward of what, what would happen. The first years that you, you spend sort of worshiping at the altar of your job or worshiping at the altar of your bank account. You don't often get a flash forward about the damage that's to come. You don't see your sort of love for God beginning to cool, distance from your friends, becoming sort of obsessed with with this achievement. The first time that you cover up something embarrassing and you don't really share and you're not vulnerable and honest because you're not sure how you're gonna be received, you you don't ever see yourself flashing forward years later and sort of like, a deeper and deeper isolation of your own making where you're like, I don't ever let anyone in. I keep these walls up because I'm not sure what it's gonna be like. We don't get to see the scope of the damage very often in the first moments of our choices. And Paul's saying, listen, it was always there. Sin and death, they were present. People were dying, right? Cain and Abel were killing each other. The, the, the Babel situation, people were trying to conquer one of their cities. There was war, but it wasn't until God's law came in and showed the scope of the damage that we fully got the picture. And then it also wasn't totally clear that we're not just dealing with misinformation. 
Like having the instructions of how to live a good life wasn't enough. We needed a person to come. Whereas we are downstream and inheriting the sin and death from Adam, we need a new, <laughs> to be downstream from a new family line, a new inheritance, a new identity. And that's at the heart of what this passage is about. I said this before, but if you read the section carefully, um, Paul makes a point in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, then there's a dash. It's sort of like a dot, dot, dot right there. And then he makes the two tangents that, that, that I mentioned before. And then he comes back in verse 21, and here's how he finishes it. Just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's the bracketed statement, right? Sin has broken into the world. Death has followed on its heels. It has littered the world with destruction and brokenness and all, all kinds of horrors. But God has come into the world to change our stream, to change our identity, to change the family that we're, that, that, that we're in, to change our future, and to give us life that lasts forever with him. The first tangent he goes on is about the law, as I mentioned, and the second one is that the, the, the repair that God is making in the world is not simply a return to the state of innocence in, in the garden. It's not simply a return to what would life be like if they had never sinned. We're going to go back to that place. It's something superior. It's something different. Paul wants us to know that the salvation that God is bringing through Jesus for the problem of sin and death is not simply to forgive you but to make you a full participant in a new creation. It's not simply to forgive you. This, some of the salvation I, I was taught as a child, and, and I'm so grateful for, for much of what I heard growing, growing up in churches, some of it I had to disregard, because it was primarily about your account with God is, is, in, is in the red, and, and God has got to forgive you of your personal sins so that your ticket is stamped for heaven one day, and you're going to be rewarded up there. Instead, you've been forgiven, you've been given the character of God so that you can be a full participant in God's new creation taking place now, and that new creation is going to spill the banks even of your mortal life into the age to come, and you're going to be a full participant in it forever and ever and ever and ever. And that, and that is the beauty of the salvation that Jesus is bringing I was going to read the, the exact passage again, but for time's sake, I'm going to skip ahead. And, and Eugene Peterson, his, his translation of, of the scriptures in the, in the messages is, is, can be really helpful if you're stuck in a passage and you're like, I'm not exactly sure what this means. I want to give you this little chunk in the middle, the second tangent that Paul goes on from, from Eugene Peterson's The Message once more. Listen to this. The rescuing gift is not exactly parallel to the death-dealing sin. If one man's sin put crowds of people at the dead end abyss of separation from God, just think what God's gift poured through one man Jesus Christ will do. There's no comparison between that death-dealing sin and this generous life-giving gift. The verdict on that one sin was the death sentence. The verdict on the many sins that followed was this wonderful life sentence. If death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you imagine the breathtaking recovery life makes 
sovereign life and those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift, this grand setting everything right that the one man Jesus Christ provides. Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong and got us in all this trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. Let's say that again. More than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many in the right. Paul is asserting, and he's going to assert this for the next three chapters in the most brilliant ways you've you've ever heard. We're entering, in my opinion, the most stirring chapters in all of the scripture, Romans 6, 7, and 8. By the time you get to Romans 8, it is a life manual on how to live in the new creation. But Paul is asserting right here in Romans 5, salvation is not just forgiveness as important as forgiveness is. Salvation is full participation in new creation. It is being sons and daughters of the king and knowing that you are called to live with a powerful alternative light in the world, to push back on the brokenness and the darkness that sin and death has brought, that you were adopted, that you were forgiven, that you were given the very character of your loving Savior and your mighty God, and you are now called to reign with him in life. I'll give it to you in verse 17. This is as specific as it gets. Pay attention to how the gift comes to us. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive, receive what? Listen to the three things you receive. God's abundant provision of grace, one. And the gift of righteousness, two. Those who receive that reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I want to pull this out for us just for a second because it's the most important message in the scriptures. This is how the gospel crashes into someone's life and utterly transforms them. The first is those who receive the abundant provision of God's grace. We say this all, all, all the time. You, you are fun, like, it is arrogant for you to think that you are so good at sinning that God cannot rescue and forgive you. Your sin is not anywhere close to the power of the blood of Jesus. However magnificently you have messed up in the world, and we have some examples of some magnificent mess-ups in the scriptures, you have not magnificently messed up enough to be beyond the grace of God. So the first thing is to receive the abundant provision of his grace. The only alternative is to basically say, I have my own standards, thanks. And I know God says I've been forgiven, but I'm going to wallow in shame a little bit more. I'm going to try to add to the cross. I'm going to try to add to the gift, or I'm going to ignore it altogether. The first thing is to receive the abundant provision. This This is the first part of justification, this theological word that's in there. The second is to receive the gift of righteousness. Right, righteousness is another word that we just totally dismiss because we never use it in real life. What is it talking about? It's saying the character of God, like all the sin was taken away, thrown into a sea of forgetfulness, and what you're given instead is a new character. The righteousness of God becomes your identity. The very character of God becomes yours. How does that happen? He fills you with his very spirit. The spirit of God fills your life. So now you've been forgiven by his abundant provision of grace. You've been given his Holy Spirit, a gift of righteousness. And then the third thing is now what do you do? What is your life now after you believe? To reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Justification and life. 
Jesus said, I've come to give you life and give it to the full. In the very beginning, after God had called order out of chaos and created this beautiful, teeming, abundant world, he set humanity at the apex of his creation. He said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to be a steward of this world with me. I want you to have dominion. I want you to have authority. And in the fall, we gave that away. And it's not just that we have a personal sin account to deal with. Of course we do. It's that we've abandoned our authority in the world to live as sons and daughters of God and to say that when you sing, when you raise your hands and you sing in a middle school uh, on a Sunday morning, God let your kingdom come. You're not just singing a personal devotion. You're, just, you're singing a declaration with the authority of a son or daughter of God that taught us to pray this way. God let your kingdom come and that he hears that and says, that's my son, that's my daughter. I want in the sphere of their life for the kingdom to come. For the love and the mercy and the justice and the, and, and, and the miracles and the power and the, and the, and the pr- 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 prophetic care to be breaking into the world through their life, in their relationships, in their workplace, in all that they do. So we're not just saying, God, make my week a little better. We're saying, let your kingdom come, let it break into the world and utterly shatter how I thought about my life. I'm reigning in this world with the one man, Jesus Christ. You don't think you're qualified, then you've missed step one and two, the abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness. Will you say those things weren't effective? What's keeping you from running full speed in participation with God as a member of the new creation? You're made to reign with him, to be a steward of the new creation, to, be, to say and demean it and to participate. God, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We're not simply talking about a return to innocence. This is a remaking of humanity into the glory of full participation with God and new creation. I'm skipping some things now. I'm sensitive to time. By the end, the summary, Paul's like, uh, let me just bring it all into focus to to end this section. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. The NIV has some some tricky translations that sometimes obscure the meaning a little bit. This This is fine. But it misses the fact that Paul had to invent a word here to get across the message of what he's saying, right? Shakespeare invented a bunch of words. David Foster Wallace actually invented a bunch of words in his writing. Paul invents a word. He only uses it one other time. There's no other examples of being used in the, in, in, in the Greek. This grace imp- increased all the more. It's like he got to a point where there were just no more words that worked. And so he says, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. Superabounded. He invents this, this Greek word, superabounded. It just overflowed like it totally tidal waved over the wall and flooded everything. It totally changed the whole history of your life and set you entirely, you were downstream from sin and death and it lifted you up miraculously and set you an entirely new river with an entirely new, new name. And it said, I've given you my abundant provision of grace. I've given you my very character by my spirit and I'm calling you to reign with me in life. Where sin increased, grace superabounded. The world is in need of people who are working for the healing of the world. 
who know that they've been a part of the problem and are a part of the problem, but who also know that where sin increases, grace super abounds. Who know that God is not a withholding father, but he is ready to lavish love on you, lavish salvation. He has given literally the blood of his own son. How will he not freely with him give us all things? You can't understand sin outside of relational context, and you certainly cannot understand salvation outside of a relational context. You're brought back in and called family. The first and deepest problem we have as people is that we need to be in a loving relationship with our God, and God has provided a way to bring us all the way back in, and it was not a set of instructions, it is the person of Jesus. Once we know that we are in, that we are family, that we belong, he's going to set us about joining him him in the repair of the world, and it's going to be humility and rigor, passion and kindness, mercy and truth, right? It's the lion that says things have to change, and it's the lamb who says we absolutely have to move forward with mercy and kindness and forgiveness and the fruit of the Spirit. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Grace to you and grace to the world. We have to learn to celebrate that for what it is in a way that shows the gift. Guys, we're about to get into the best, the best of the best in the next few chapters. It is going to be so good. I want you to know the reckless love of God that has come after you in the person of Jesus. Here was our prayer before this service, that if you've never believed this, that the Holy Spirit would call out to you. There's no like turn a phrase or, or sermon point or song order that we can do that's gonna make you come to life. But if you sense the spirit of God saying, I want you to trust in the provision of grace I've made for you, that all the things of your life can, can, can be totally reconciled, that, that you would receive that today. You would receive that gift from the spirit. And if you are, I've, I've already been a believer, this message is your message. This gospel is your gospel that you would be awakened with fire in your bones to know that you were called to reign in life with Jesus Christ. That affects how you spend your money, how you do your work, how you think about relationships, who you invite to dinner, how you ride the the train, what you choose for entertainment. Like it, It affects every area of your life. You're called to sing and to pray, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, and God to say, yes, I'm ready to answer, let's go. To reign with him in this life. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I give you praise. There is none like you. Where sin increased, grace superabounded. I pray in the name of Jesus that this morning your grace would superabound in this place. That it would overcome every obstacle of, of lack of faith, every obstacle of shame, every obstacle of depression, every obstacle of anxiety, every obstacle of just sort of intellectual circling in our mind but never taking hold of the incredible gift. God, whatever the things are that have distracted our minds and hearts, would your grace superabound now? Would you give us a sense of how you've pursued us with your love? That you are not unaware of the world and you are not unaware of the intricacies of our life. You know us all together. And your invitation is love, your invitation is salvation, your invitation is mercy. May we receive it and then may we run with you and reigning with you in this, in this life that you've called us to. May your kingdom come in our lives and in our world. Holy Spirit, come and show us how to respond in Jesus' name.
Amen.